last week we saw that chapter 105, Darkness to the Book of Isaiah. Another way that I mentioned that we can think of this is as a dramatic and the dramatic opening that ends with an ominous cliffhanger. We'll talk about how this is honestly kind of overused in action movies where you have just dramatic action film explosions, whatever you want to put in there, this opening that the ending is very ominous. How is this problem, this whatever this is, the hero or heroine is trapped and about to die, how how are they going to get out of this? That's the feeling that the first five chapters are trying to give you as you're going into the book of Isaiah. These chapters, one through five, paint a bleak picture of the sin of the people during the time of Isaiah and give a rationale for God's just punishment of exile. They contain short but very bright pictures of a new, restored, and glorified Jerusalem. But the dark and violent content of chapter 5 that closes out the introduction of these first five chapters leaves you wondering just how on earth are these promises going to come true? How can light come out of this darkness? How is this future work of restoration and glory going to happen? God, as seen in chapter 5, as we took some time to look at last week, he has seemingly done all the work that he could in his vineyard. You read 5.2, he, as the good farmer, as the good caretaker of his vineyard, had taken every step that he could. He even built a watchtower to protect it. He'd done all the work for his vineyard. And instead of producing the good grapes that he had expected, they produced the opposite. Wild grapes, which you read that, and we're like, well, you can just use them for wine or something. No, the, the word is inedible. And not just inedible, but useless grapes is what he had found after all the care he had put in. And so he take, he drives the people into exile. That is his just judgment that we read in chapters 1 through 5. They are driven from his presence for their sin, destroyed for their arrogance and their pride. The closing chapter or closing verses of chapter 5 again close with this intense dark picture. If you read again chapter 5 verses 26 to 30, they say he will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, nor a waistband is loose, nor a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp and their bows are bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint and their wheels are like a whirlwind. This an image of a superhuman army coming to enact the vengeance of the Lord. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey, and they carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. The first five chapters end in complete darkness and destruction. God, as I mentioned, said in 5.4 earlier in this chapter, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges and it shall be devoured. I shall break down its wall and shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up and I will command the clouds and they will rain no rain upon it. As we go into chapter 6 today, imagine, as I mentioned earlier about this opening movie scene that ends with a cliffhanger, as we go into chapter 6, imagine that the movie screen after these five chapters fades to black. 
the title Isaiah comes on the screen. And we go back in time to Isaiah's call to ministry. And a new scene begins, chapter 6. And the questions hanging in the air from that cliffhanger opening, questions hanging in the air, is exile the end of God's people? Is it the end of God's promises? What more can God do? How will the great visions of chapter 2 and chapter 4 be fulfilled? Does, those are the questions that, the, that Isaiah wants you in, to have in your mind as you go into chapter 6. Chapter 6 was already read as a scripture reading, so I won't read it, but keep those questions in mind as we begin chapter 6 today, as we go through the rest of the book, because the opening sets the stage for the entire book. So those are the questions we ought to be looking for answers for. So as we go into chapter 6 today, it begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. It begins, In the year that the King Uzziah died. Again, keep have that movie image in your mind. The screen faded to black, the, the word Isaiah, the title of the movie comes up, and then the, the new scene begins. And a lot of, like how a lot of new movies do, it's like three years earlier, like whatever it says on there. And this timestamp is in the year that King Uzziah died. And we might read that. It's kind of like almost reading genealogies in the Bible. It's a, you read a timestamp, you're like, all right, skip, moving on. Hold up. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in the introduction. This is an important timestamp. There is a reason that we are given this timestamp as we now are really going into the content of the book of Isaiah after that dramatic opening. So what is so important about this timestamp? Uzziah's death marked a turning point for Judah, both politically and spiritually. This time marks an end to a period of Judean power and prosperity. Uzziah had had a long and prosperous reign of about 52 years. The nation had done pretty well in his reign. And he had been characterized, by and large, as we read in Kings and Chronicles, he had been characterized, by and large, by doing what pleased the Lord. We talked about a couple weeks ago how he and then his son and his son's son, how they hadn't taken away high places and that gets worse and worse, but we're not, we're not there yet. Uzziah, for the most part, had done well. He hadn't taken away the high places, but at least he himself had done pretty well. But then we read at the end of his life, what did all that prosperity and wealth and success turn into? It turned into pride. And then he made the prideful decision. That sounds a lot like what Aaron's sons had done back when the tabernacle was built. He decided to try to burn incense in the presence of the Lord. Basically saying, look at me. I have the right to go into God's presence. Keep, maybe keep that in mind as we talk about God's presence in a few verses. But that happened at the end of his life. And around the time of his death, the long-weakened Assyrian Empire begins to reemerge as a superpower with Tiglath-Pileser III and his campaigns as he seeks to extend his empire, including, around this time, taking three of the northern tribes into exile. And this time, as I mentioned earlier, kind of transitioning and thinking about the end of Uzziah's life, this time is not only a political transition point with Judea, or, sorry, Judah beginning a decline and then Assyria beginning an incline, you also have a spiritual turning point as well because we just mentioned what Uzziah did at the end of his life. He was punished for this pride and this sinful act by um, getting a skin disease from the Lord. And then because of that, he had to live in isolation the rest of his life for about 10 years. So his son, Jotham, actually had to co-rule with him because Jotham was able to actually be places and actually be in front of people. He didn't have to live in isolation because he didn't have the skin disease. 
Jotham was also characterized by doing what was right. He had a very short reign. That's actually why we don't really read about him in the book of Isaiah, because he only reigned a few years on his own. So by the time Uzziah dies, it's really only a few years later that you're already into Ahaz, which is, we'll deal with him a lot in this book. Um, but um, Jotham also did not tear down the high places, and we see that this continued failure for a full reform and for true leadership from the throne brings us to Ahaz, who did what was evil and participated in all the idolatry and corrupt practices of the nations around him and led the people to do the same. So we think of this time step in the year that King Uzziah died. At a, in other words, at a time when a foreign king, a foreign empire, is on the rise. Around this time, again, remember that just the northern tribes, their northern neighbors, had three of them had been taken into exile around this time. The foreign powers are on the rise. Uzziah is dying. The kings of Judah are about to quickly decline into corruption. So around this time where you have the foreign powers rising and the powers of Judah declining, Isaiah receives a vision of the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. That kind of sounds a lot like chapter 2. Isaiah is really good to keep bringing things in. So you have foreign power rising, Judah falling, but the Lord high and lifted up. Despite all the darkness of this hour, the Lord is still sitting on his throne. Uzziah was a great leader. He ruled for a long time. And the time of his death marked a time of despair. And Isaiah, not knowing exactly when this was written, but either looking back and knowing the decline or seeing the decline coming, because he, he likely knew Jotham and might have even known Ahaz at this time because there's so many short years there, the transfer of power. But knowing the decline, despite this hour of darkness, Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on his throne. He is still Lord overall. To understand better this vision that Isaiah has of the Lord seated on his throne, we need to remember something that I talked about last year in Exodus. The Ark of the Covenant was viewed to be the Lord's footstool. There's a lot of throne and Lord sitting imagery going on, but if you actually kind of trace and follow what's going on with the imagery, and it's actually specifically pointed out multiple times in the Old Testament, is that the understanding was the Ark of the Covenant was a footstool. So the cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant are not actually surrounding the throne itself. And in fact, they're not even really forming the throne because they're sometimes it, it, you almost imagine that like their wings coming over the footstool form the chair. And that's not even really an accurate thinking of how um, Israel would have conceptualized that. Um, the cherubim are basically the, the guardians and the bearers of, not even really the throne, it's the footstool. Because it was understood that God is sitting on his heavenly throne, and he just is choosing that his footstool, his feet, are resting on the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the tabernacle, or later the temple, which would be the temple in Isaiah's time. But this also helps us to explain why we read at the end of verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up, and the train or the hem, the very bottom of his robe, filled the temple. So as you're trying to visualize this, think of Isaiah seeing the temple. And the Ark of the Covenant is where God's feet are. Then you have the hem, the very bottom of his robe, is filling the entire temple. And then you look up. that That's where God is on his heavenly throne. The temple is just his footstool. He's much bigger, much higher than that. The Ark of the Covenant 
In fact, with its cherubim, or throne guardian, throne-bearing angels, there's multiple purpose, purposes and kind of imagery wrapped into the cherubim. Um, but this concept is actually similar to other ancient Near Eastern art of uh, cherubim thrones. And in those images, the king or the deity is shown sitting on that throne with the cherubim, and the cherubim are actually used to help kind of carry the throne back and forth. So in the other nations, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim there, would have been a much more uh, localized understanding of, like, that is the throne. So what's actually interesting is that, especially knowing that imagery of all the other nations around, what's happening here is that Yahweh is actually being shown to be much different and higher because this cherubim throne that actually was the throne of the deity, often used to carry like a likeness or an image of the deity, was actually just the footstool. For your gods, that's the throne. For my god, that's just his footstool. He's much higher. He is Lord over all. And then as we continue reading in verse 2, above this footstool and its cherubim, we read of more angels. The seraphim, who are flying above God and praising him. In the name of these angels, the seraphim, we actually have another reference to God's supremacy. There is a lot going on in Isaiah 6 about a polemic against the religions and the understandings of the gods of the nations around them, and basically a continued hammering, hammering home of the point that God is supreme and that God is Lord of all. Which, what did we just talk about? The kings of Judah following the foreign power rising, and Isaiah is being given this image with all this imagery that, yeah, Assyria might be on the rise, but God is still Lord over all. And that point's going to be driven home again and again and again. In the name of these angels, the seraphim, we have, just like I said, another reference to God's supremacy. The word seraphim is actually just a transliteration or a sounding out of the Hebrew word. Because the Hebrew word is literally seraphim. That's the English version. It sounds pretty similar in Hebrew. Everywhere else in the Old Testament, including elsewhere, even in Isaiah, this word, or a form of it, is translated into something along the lines of fiery and or flying serpent. It is usually associated with the cobra and the fiery venom and its wings or hood. Because the cobra has the hood. When it's flared, it looks kind of like wings. This is actually the same word, the same imagery that shows up with the serpents, the fiery serpents that are plaguing the Israelites in the wilderness. Same word. So it has this, basically, cobra imagery is what is attached to this word. And the transliteration here, I think, is on purpose, actually, to avoid putting snakes in the place of these angels. To avoid putting snakes in the, in the imagery of the throne appearance of God. I think there is some merit to that because we do read of the seraphim having faces and feet and hands and voices and six wings. So it's different than the imagery. It's not obviously just strictly a cobra that is there. Um, so I think there's some merit to it. But I think that the snake connection is still very much so on purpose because the cobra as a throne guardian is a well-known ancient Near Eastern image, especially in the Egyptian theology where a cobra was worn on the forehead, which... Why would maybe Egypt be important? What, what's being prophesied is about to happen to the people? Exile, being taken out of the land, kind of the idea of bondage. But think, you got to think a little conceptually here to, to realize why some of this would be maybe really important. Um, but I think, again, this language is very much on purpose and tied to the Egyptian theology. For an Egyptian theology, a cobra was worn on the forehead of the pharaohs and the kings 
and the deities as a symbol of protection. It, it, the cobra was the protector god that protected the the royal line and also protected the de- the other deities. This cobra had its hood or its wings flared and was ready to use its venom to protect the pharaoh or deity. That's why a lot of times, even in like I think in the Prince of Egypt and other movies, and a lot of times you see art. You have the pharaoh has like this cobra thing on its forehead. That there's theology behind that. That's why the the pharaoh is wearing it. What's interesting, though, in this scene, read what the seraphim are doing here around the Lord. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. There's, there's no protecting going on there. What's interesting is that instead of protecting Yahweh, like the imagery you would expect to have, the seraphim whose six wings show their greater power and majesty, there's actually no other image that has six wings. Four is, I think, the most of anything similar in in a surrounding culture. So by giving these seraphim six wings, what it's saying is that these throne guardians are even higher and mightier and a greater form than any other throne guardian. But what are they doing with their six wings? With four of them, they're covering, I think, one way to understand this is maybe covering from head to toe with four of their wings to protect themselves from the Lord. So it is a reversal, actually, of the imagery. And not only so, it's actually an escalation and then a surprising reversal. Because it's saying, well, yeah, you're familiar with this throne guardian imagery, and you have this cobra thing that looks different in different cultures, but it's it's all kind of the same idea. We're going to take that, we're going to use it, we're going to escalate it, and say our God has even greater throne guardians, but they don't have to guard him. Because he doesn't need to be protected. They actually have to guard themselves from his majestic holiness and power. They have to protect themselves with four of their wings. To shield themselves from his awe and from his glory. Isaiah then uses the seraphim to underscore the supreme holiness and might of God, who is protected by these even mightier, more majestic guardians and doesn't even need their protection. And what are these seraphim saying? We read in verse 3, And one called to another, which, if you're curious about visualizing this, a lot of people take that to see that there are only two seraphim here. It may or may not be the case. Um, but one calls to another and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The three times repetition of holy by these seraphim is yet another way to underscore the supreme holiness and majesty of God. You have to realize that when this was originally written, there wasn't bold, there wasn't italics, there wasn't underlining. Or I don't even think they used originally capitalization and lowercase. It was just all like continuous letters all together with no real way of emphasis except for repetition. You see a lot of twice repetition throughout, a bi- throughout the Bible. You much more rarely see the thrice repetition. Because to repeat something three times means that it is supreme. It is most of all, being the most emphasized possible. So you have these throne guardians that are the mightiest, the most majestic throne guardians, more majestic than the guardians of all the other surrounding religions, shielding themselves from the one that they're supposed to be protecting. And they're calling him the most holy of all, which is why they're shielding themselves from him. The next line is usually translated as the whole earth is full of his glory. 
but it could also be translated, and I think has the idea, whatever way you do translate it, of may his glory fill the whole earth. In fact, you'll see that in the footnote, and some translations actually have that as the ending there of verse 3. The glory of God is usually associated with his visible earthly presence. Think about images that are associated with the glory of God. Think about the tabernacle. Think about Mount Sinai. Think about the temple. When the glory appears, it's this glory cloud. It's this glory fire. It's smoke. It's something. It's always something visible and tangible that usually kicks people out. We'll get there. So you have the glory that is usually associated with visible earthly presence. And what's interesting here is Notice this catcher phrase, may the whole earth be full of his glory, or the whole earth is full of his glory. Picking up, I think, on the imagery, as his robe, as the hem of his robe filled the temple, may his glory fill the earth. May it extend not, not just to the temple, but to the entire earth. And especially in light of the vision of chapter 4, with the glory cloud over all of Mount Zion, as we read in 4, 2 to 6, and how the later chapters of this book will talk about his future earthly reign, I think it is helpful to see this as anticipation by the seraphim of may the glory of the Lord fill the whole earth. I think I think you can read it both ways, because obviously it's, he's being shown as the ruler of all. So it's not wrong to say that his glory fills the earth, but I think they're speaking in anticipation of may his glory, his physical rule, his physical presence be seen and felt and recognized and honored and worshipped in all the earth. Possibly it is helpful maybe to translate this as the whole earth is full and will be full of his glory. Either way, this is not wishful thinking. This is anticipation. This isn't, oh, I hope one day the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. This is the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. Either way, however you want to understand this, with the rise of a foreign power and the decline of Judah's kings, this proclamation would be an encouragement to Isaiah that God is the supreme king and that one day he will topple all earthly kingdoms and be seen as the Lord of all, visibly recognized and worshipped. Assyria, this current rising power, is nothing compared to the Lord of all. And we've seen this emphasized multiple times already at this point. And then the next thing we read in 6 verse 4, we read that the foundations of the thresholds, thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Foundations shaking, filled with smoke. There should be some images popping into your mind. What's going on here? Think Mount Sinai whole mountain trembling, fire and smoke symbolizing the presence of God come down. Think the tabernacle, think the temple. That's what's going on here. It's basically what's, what's happening in Isaiah's vision is that the Lord's presence is arriving. The foundations are shaking. The house is filled with his glory. And what what usually happened when the house was filled with glory and the smoke came down, this cloud came down? Um, what did the Israelites have to do in Mount Sinai? They had to not touch it or they're going to die. Um, in the tabernacle, the glory only filled the tabernacle after Moses and Aaron had finally done their like final dedication. They got out and then the glory came in. At the temple, when the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenants, 
they were ushered out by the cloud. Nobody stands in the presence of the glory. So what do we then read in the very next verse? And I said, Isaiah, woe is me. I'm lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I think Isaiah understands what's going on, and he's terrified. With the cry of the seraphim, of holy, 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 with the foundation shaking and the glory cloud appearing, there's another cry that goes out, and this one's from Isaiah. The woes that had just gone to the people in chapter 5 are now from that prophet's own lips going to himself as he sees the presence of the Lord. He says that he is a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips with the with the chorus of holy, holy, holy being spoken from the lips of the seraphim around him, he realizes he can't join. His lips, he knows, are unclean. As He's saying that as a way of saying, I am unclean. What, what their lips are doing, mine can't. I, I can't join in that cry, so my cry will be woe. He realizes in this moment, as he sees God for who he truly is, he realizes what his greatest need is. Cleansing. Forgiveness. To be able to stand in the presence and not die. It is interesting, by the way, that he mentions dwelling in the midst of the people with unclean lips. This may seem random to us, and it may we think if we were in this scenario, like why would we even bring that up? Um, we're focused on ourselves. That like I I shouldn't be here. What's interesting is that Isaiah does include this idea. I am a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why why is that important? First, the culture of the day and many cultures still today, by the way, have much more of a community orientation than we are used to. In a very real sense, the sin of the community is the sin of the individual. Isaiah feels the weight of the sin of his nation. Isaiah would also. Um, sorry, I just lost my place in my notes. Isaiah feels the weight of the community's sin as he stands in God's presence. And the seraphim, by the way, had also just spoken of their anticipation of God's glory filling the earth. What's Isaiah feel, feeling right now in the presence of that glory? That he shouldn't be there and that he needs to be cleaned. And the seraphim just said, may the glory of the Lord fill the whole earth. So What's Isaiah, as a good prophet, as a good representative for the people, what is he thinking in his mind? If I can't stand in this glory, my nation definitely can't either. I, I am a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. If this glory is going to fill the earth, we're all doomed. That's, I think, what's going on and why that's included here. So in answer to this need, this felt need, this emergency cleansing, if you will. I need to be clean. Woe is me. I need to get out of here is effectively what Isaiah is feeling. We read in verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lip. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. 
In answer to this need for cleansing, one of the seraphim, certainly under the direction of the Lord, for they don't act on their own, takes a burning coal from the altar and touches it to Isaiah's mouth, saying, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I think, again, it's important to keep in mind here that Isaiah is using the, the wording of lips as a representative for the whole. He's basically saying, I can't join into this holy, 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 because I, inside, am not clean. So that the, this, don't, don't take it too far. The seraphim touches the lips. There's nothing really special about the lips. It's, he's basically echoing what Isaiah had just said, cleansing Isaiah. I wish I could say for certain, by the way, which altar is being referred to. Because we read, having taken in his hand a burning coal taken from, or sorry, with tongs from the altar. Which altar? It doesn't actually specify in the Hebrew here. I wish I could say for certain which one it is because there is really, really cool imagery either way, whether it's the altar of burnt offering or whether it's the altar of incense. Um, the, the text again doesn't specify and I read a bunch of different commentators on it and they did a really good job convincing me of either one. Um, but <laughs> to me, it seems like the evidence is most weighted towards the altar of incense. Again, take that with a grain of salt. I'm just saying that's the best argument that I came across. So I'm going to go with it here. But if you heard stuff from the other altar too, you can also include that imagery. Um, but to me, the weight of the evidence seems more on the altar of incense, especially as it is used in Leviticus 16 and Numbers 16. In Leviticus 16, the burning coals and incense are held by the high priest as he enters into the Holy of Holies to cover himself and protect himself from the presence of the Lord. What, what is Isaiah feeling the need for right now? And the high priest does this as he enters into the Holy of Holies, which is already, by the way, in the Holy of Holies, we read in Leviticus 16 that the Lord says he will come down in the cloud. So like the Lord is already shrouded and veiled. We talked about the veiled concept in Sunday school. The Lord's already veiled, but basically the high priest is bringing in even more veiling to, to create more smoke and the smell of incense to further protect himself from being in proximity to the presence of the Lord. And then in number 16, the burning coals and the incense are used in, if you will, an emergency atonement, which kind of sounds similar to here, the need for an emergency atonement. Um, in number 16, it is a protection of the people from the wrath of God after their complaining, which they complain a lot. If you're curious about the context there, number 16 is the rebellion of Korah. There's kind of a big rebellion that goes on around that time. Some people are swallowed up by the earth. And then after that, the people are still complaining. So God understandably is furious with the people and sends a plague. And then Moses turns to Aaron and says, go get the coals and the incense and run in the midst of the people to atone for them and protect them. So Aaron runs out with the coals and the incense and stands between the people who have the plague and the people who don't have the plague yet and gives basically an emergency atonement for the people using the coals that I think we see here in Isaiah 6 as well. And if you're curious, okay, I keep mentioning incense. Why don't we see incense in Isaiah 6? I think the, la the lack of incense is missing because the imagery of the incense serves as a olfactory, a smell symbol a, of the connection or the bridge between God and the people. The smell of the incense rises with the smoke. So the, the thought was basically have this olfactory stairway or pathway between God and the people. Well, Isaiah's already in the presence of God. So we don't really need the imagery of the incense right now. But we do need the atoning and the cleansing of the coals. So to me, that is the best understanding that I came across. There is a good argumentation on either side, so take that for what you will. Um, but either way, there is very powerful imagery going on here. 
And whether this is right or not, the, uh, the altar, uh, whether, whether that's right or not, the bigger point being made is that God mercifully takes the initiative to provide a way for Isaiah to be clean. That is the important takeaway. Isaiah realizes he's in the presence of the God. He is of God. He is a person of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He shouldn't be there. His sin means that he is basically due for destruction. In fact, the word, I forgot to mention this earlier, the word for I am lost, that word actually means to be silenced or to put it more dramatically, it also means to cease to exist, which is another, like you definitely silence somebody when they cease to exist. So like that's the word, what the word means. And that's what he's feeling. And God meets him in that moment and provides atonement rather than destruction. If Isaiah didn't remember those two incidences in Leviticus 16 and Numbers 16, then as this seraphim approaches him with this burning coal, there might have been some fear there. What's about to happen with this fire? But instead of burning and dying, the fire cleanses and atones. God provides a way for Isaiah to be clean and to be declared clean and able to stand in God's presence in relationship with him. And then in 6, 8, after Isaiah has been cleansed, now that he is clean and able to stand in God's presence, he hears a question. And it's almost as if like this cleansing has happened on the side of like Isaiah's need for this, the seraphim Seraphim goes and takes care of it, and then Isaiah walks back into the presence of God. It's almost as if he walks into the end of a meeting, because he he hears this question when he walks in. And we read in verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? The us here might seem a bit odd, but the Lord is speaking, if you will, with a counsel, I would say, of heavenly beings. And this is actually something that we see quite a few times in Scripture. We talked a bit about this in my Sunday school class this spring, so I won't belabor the point. But God often invites collaboration, feedback, and participation from both heavenly and earthly beings. In these councils, though, because I I do need to be careful with that word, because you have the verse about no one counsels the Lord. In this council and in council scenes throughout the Bible, no one is ever seen or acting on equal footing with God. When God's talking to other heavenly beings or he's talking to people, God always has the final say. Like if you think of the council, God is like, I don't know what, what, you want, what position you want to put him in, but he's Lord of all. Like there's him and then there's the council. He gets feedback, but it's his decision every time. And I think that's what's going on here. And that's the, the us. Basically, Isaiah's walking into this divine council and basically at the end of their meeting when God is asking, okay, who's going to go? And in response to the Lord's question, and remember, he's just been cleansed. He's just been basically, in his eyes, he's just been saved from being decimated and wiped out and like destroyed for being too close to the presence of God. So he hears this question. He just immediately enthusiastically volunteers. Here I am. Send me. And the message then, because remember, the question is, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So I'm sending somebody for something. And then Isaiah says, here, here am I. Send me. And then the message that he is given to give to the people breaks his heart. Because we read, starting in 9, And the Lord said, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
there's a quotation there, so I'm going to pause there, because that's the message that he's given to give the people. The translation um, is a little interesting here. You'll see a footnote in the ESV. It says, keep on hearing, or hear indeed. Or another way of reading that is, you will hear. You will indeed hear. But you aren't going to understand. See indeed. You will see. But you will not perceive. And God continues then, in verse 10, make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. As I said, Isaiah hears this message, probably with a heavy heart, he asks, How long? Before we get to God's answer, I want to camp a little bit on what God had sent him to do, the message that he had given him. Because especially at face value, as the ESV translated, we read these verses on their own and we might question God's justice. Is God preventing the people from repenting? Read the end of 10. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. There are a couple of things to consider that I think will help us to answer this question. First, the whole point of the opening five chapters, and why I think you have to read verses in context. Caleb and I say this again and again and again. You have to read verses in context. Don't read them on their own. The whole point of the opening five chapters is that God's imminent judgment is completely just and reasonable in light of the rebellion, sin, and arrogance of the people. In chapter one, we read that the people, God's children, have despised him become laden with iniquity, chosen to be the offspring or seed of evildoers rather than the children or offspring of God. We read that in chapter 1, verse 4. Their worship, we read throughout the rest of the chapter 1, their worship is empty and worthless, for their hearts are far from God. And their society has become completely corrupt and wicked. In chapters 2 and 3, we read that they have chosen to idolize and rely on just about anything except God. We read in 3, 8 through 9, their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. They've become as bad as the city that is an image of one ripe for destruction. And they're not even covering it up. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. It reminds me of back in the genealogy, yeah, those boring things in Genesis, where I think it's Lamech says, I've killed multiple men. Like They're just bragging about their sin. That's where they've come. In chapter 5, we read that God, who had done everything imaginable for his vineyard, his people, found not good grapes, but wild, useless, inedible grapes. In 5, 18 through 19, we read, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him, God, be quick, Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. What's interesting is we read those verses and like you read them at face value. You're like, well, that's confusing because like they're drawing in sin by the cartload. They're drawing in sin as much as they can. And then the very next thing you read is you read, let let God be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One draw near and let it come that we may know it. That That's not genuine. 
to understand that probably you have to realize that that's sarcasm. There's a lot of sarcasm in Isaiah, by the way. Um, because before and after that, you have the image of these people who are drawing in sin as much as they can and purposely living in rebellion of God and idolizing everything except God. These people in 5, 18 through 19, the people of God, they are just as the scoffers in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4, they mockingly call for the action and counsel of the Lord, daring the Lord to act as they draw in as much sin as they can. They are arrogantly assuming that he will not act in judgment. That's what's going on in 518 and 19. To such a people, God's judgment is just. And if he chooses to harden their hearts as confirmation and a sealing of the fate that they have chosen, then he has the right to do so. We as humans don't know when somebody has reached the point of no return. But God as the judge is the only one who does. Second, though, the words of Jesus and how people responded to him also help us understand what these verses can mean. The com- this commission, these verses in Isaiah from, from chapter 6, 9 through 10 here, these are quoted by or about Jesus in Mark 4, Mark 13, and John 12. In these passages, especially in Matthew 13, we see that when Jesus spoke to the people in parables and his disciples came to ask him why, he said, For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. To say, you will hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes, or sorry, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. For t- Going back through these verses, to the one who has, which in context here I think means to the one who wants to hear, more will be given, more will be explained. But from the one who has not, who has closed their ears and their hearts, what he has will be taken away. When we read that the people's heart is dull, by the way, this word here, dull, at the end of uh, 10, the first line there, make the heart of this people dull. This word means to be fattened up or completely filled or even overfilled. It is usually used in the context of being filled up with sin, evil, and rebellion. In other words, the heart of the people being dull, as we read here and as we read of the people that Jesus is talking to, their heart is filled, overfilled, with everything except God. They are satisfied, but in the wrong things. So they have no room left for God. In the passages about Jesus and his ministry, we see that this commission of Isaiah is quoted and used when Jesus is being rejected by people who do not want to hear what he has to say. And when they do hear it, they are hardened even harder against it. We also see, though, that in these passages that some do long to hear and understand and believe. As we read in John 12, 42, that some of the religious leaders even came to believe, though they did not confess it publicly for fear of the Pharisees. Just as the last line 
in this condemnation says, turn and be healed. Some did. Most didn't. To this commission, to this sobering commission, basically being called to a known failure as a mission, Isaiah understandably says, how long? How long, O Lord? I think what we hear in this is his question, how long must I give this message of condemnation and see their hearts harden? Will there be mercy? Will they repent? And in reply, God tells him that this will last until the city lies in waste and the people are exiled, and even the tenth or the remnant that remains will be burned or purged again. Yet, even after all this, even after, as we read, the tree is felled and the stump burned, the stump will remain. The very last line, the holy seed is its stump. Even after judgment, there is hope. The stump is damaged and burned, but it is there. God is not done with his people. Judgment is not the end of the story. And keep that stump in mind. We're going to see it later. The closing mention... Oh, sorry. Uh, just as the burning coal brought cleansing and atonement to Isaiah, so the burning judgment of God is going to somehow bring cleansing and atonement for the people. The offspring or the seed of evildoers, as we read in chapter 1, verse 4, that when God says that his children, his chosen people, have chosen to become offspring of evildoers. The offspring or the seed of the evildoers will become, as we see here at the end of chapter 6, the holy seed or the holy offspring. This, the word translated in the ESV seed here, and then back in 1.4 translated offspring. I don't know why they didn't translate them the same. They're the same exact Hebrew word. So the, the seed of evildoers is called here the holy seed. So the question, as we look at this call to Isaiah, is we think about what just happened. As we think about this stump that will remain. Isaiah, when he saw God for who he was, who he really is, realized his greatest need. When will they realize their greatest need? This closing mention of the holy seed plants the idea of hope. Somehow from this stump is going to come hope, for the holy seed remains. The chapter opens with a dying king and ends with a felled tree. But the holy seed remains. The king is dead, but God is on his throne. The tree has fallen, but the stump remains. There is hope. Chapter 5 ended with the introduction of darkness. And this chapter contains a lot of darkness as well. But there is hope. Through judgment, through fire, there is purification restoration, atonement for Isaiah. Will these also come to God's people? God made a way for Isaiah. God took the initiative for Isaiah. 
and declared him clean and forgiven? How will he make a way for the people to also be cleansed and forgiven so that they can be with him and stand in his presence when his glory fills the earth? The chapter closes with these questions hanging in the air. So that's where I'm going to close today, too. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for the fact that you are Lord of all. No matter our darkness, no matter what this world looks like, no matter what the powers of this world are doing, no matter how much rulers seem to be on the rise, no matter what our circumstances are doing, you are still Lord of all. And I pray that we would see you for who you are, to see you in your holiness. And that most importantly, we would realize what we need most. Isaiah saw it. The people, as we're going to see in these next few chapters, don't. And he wasn't the only one that saw this. When Jesus was here on earth, the Messiah, God with us, we still missed him. His, his own disciples wanted something other than what he actually came to bring. They wanted him to be a ruler, powerful, to rid them of Roman oppression. They still didn't get it that that wasn't their greatest need. Their greatest need was to see you for who you are and to realize who we are and to acknowledge our need to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to have our guilt atoned for, to be brought by you into relationship with you, that we may be restored as your children. I pray that we would not harden our hearts, that we would not, as we read, have dull hearts fattened up and filled up and satisfied with things other than you, that we would learn to fill our hearts with you, with love for you. I thank you that you took the initiative for Isaiah to clean him, to cleanse him, to atone for his sin and his guilt, and to allow him to stand in your presence. I thank you that you sent your son to do the same for us, that you took the initiative and made a way for us to be clean, that you met us in our true need and provided a solution for us. And I praise you for it. I pray all this in your name. Amen.